Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunar Neunheim, futurist and author. In episode 115 of the podcast, the topic is the future of cybersecurity. Our guest is Bob Gourley, co-founder and CTO of UDA LLC. In this conversation, we talk about new mental models for thinking about security, zero trust networks, cyber threat amnesia, where you might mitigate the threat and forget, the evolution of technology, and we discuss the Red Queen effect. The host of this podcast, uh, Trun Arneunheim, PhD, is the author of Health Tech, Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware, and Mindset, published by Rutledge in 2021. Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, published by Kogan Page in 2021. Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, and Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial Failure, both published by Atmosphere Press in 2020. Leadership from Below, How the Internet Generation Redefines the Workplace by Lulu Press in 2008. For an overview, go to transbooks at trondandtime.com slash books. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to futurize.org slash sponsors. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, including how to book him for keynote speeches, please go to futurize.org slash store. We will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thank you so much. Let's begin. Bob, how are you today? Very well, Trond. How are you? I'm doing well, actually. It's been a podcast day for me, which is a, a great day. That's good. Yeah. Um, so who is Bob? You, uh, you're curious in a, a couple of ways, which we'll explore. Um, just because, you know, when I am going to interview someone who's a very senior cybersecurity person, uh, the, the beard is okay, that I can make fit, but... Um, then there's other stuff that you were telling me about, and it's 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 kind of funny how you got into to the business. So you grew up in Tennessee. Yeah. You tell me you were a long-haired kid in college. Right. You had a stint as a bartender. Right. Um, but then you became a Navy guy, an intelligence professional, and an enterprise sort of CTO. Uh, and you're an author. We'll talk about your book, uh, The Cyber Threat, uh, from 2014, but still very relevant because you wrote pretty smart things that's that are still still relevant today G- can you give me a sense of how a guy who has long hair and grows up in Tennessee ends up as an intelligence expert well so I was um, a bartender in college and uh, that's the way to pay the bills and uh, I was a chemistry major with a you know physics and biology minors and um, was planning on pursuing that path and then I um started to realize people who graduate with chemistry degrees, you have you know fewer options than you might believe when you start out. You end up working for a chemistry firm and maybe a 
titrating Pepto-Bismol, you know, mixes all day long and make sure and just, it's like, I didn't want to do that. And uh, maybe realized a little too late that um, I, I wanted to pursue other options. I started talking to family about uh, potential of military service. And some of my relatives were saying, Navy, go Navy, Navy Intel, because it is so technologically based. Um, and at the time, they had launched constellations of satellites. And this was back in the uh, early 80s. It's not widely known, uh, but these are very technical kind of satellites. And um, it's interesting to me. So I started reading up on it and asked the Navy and put in an application. And they selected me. They uh, selected me as a Navy Intel officer. And then I uh, was able to sign the paper then. Uh, and the rest is history. Early on, I uh, was put in this career path of, they called it operational intelligence. So the task is bring all the information together and form an opinion and then provide that to decision makers. Um, and our kind of in operational intelligence, I tell people it's a little bit like working as an editor of a newspaper, a very special newspaper where you uh, have classified sources just bombarding you with information and you try to figure out what the adversaries are doing and, um, and tell your bosses and decision makers. Interesting stuff. And by the way, I, I must address, I, this is a podcast, but for those who are lucky enough to see the video version, I, I love your background, which we have covered is not virtual. This this was your summer project to organize your basement into, it is the, the neatest set of tools. Uh, and and I, I must deconstruct it a little bit as like the proper literary critic. There are an enormous amount of locks in your uh, on your wall. You must have a proclivity for locking things down. Well, so yes, and um, even in, in my youth, I would enjoy um, sticking something in the, the keyhole and see if you can make the lock work. And, you know, it's a, a version of analog hacking, I guess you could say. So it's um, more to open them up than to lock them down. That fascinates yeah, it's, you. It's like a puzzle. You know, can you put something in there and you know, fidget with it just right and open it? And it's a, it's a very enjoyable puzzle. It also That's does funny. kind of make the point that um, no lock uh, can withstand an adversary attempt to open a lock. Well, this brings me to my actual first question, which is, why do you like hackers? You know, That's an odd thing for a security professional to say yeah. at first thought. Yeah, it, it may seem that way, but really, I think... Um, when I think of the term hacker, I think of, um, well, a little bit me in my youth. At the time, there were not laws against the thing I did. I would never say I hacked anything, but I did gain unauthorized access to the computers at college and, um, and change the code to do things my way. Or, you know, later as I uh, bought uh, computer systems and gaming systems, learn how to get in and change the game so you always win. And that kind of attitude is very prevalent among technologists. You want to learn how things work. Uh, to change them and really push the envelope. And that's the spirit of the true hackers. And the, the real hackers have qualities that I admire so much, like qualities of persistence and never giving up. Um, you know, these locks behind me, it's pretty easy to open. You want to open a major web application? That takes persistence and smarts and you just, you know, never giving up. And I just really love people with that kind of attitude. And Hackers, to me, um, are good. Uh, people say uh, there's this art form, they call it ethical hacking. 
meeting someone who will help you secure your system. Well, to me, I don't need to use that word ethical. All hackers are ethical to me. Um, you may find some bad apples, just like, you know, I don't say ethical businessmen or Trond, I don't call you a ethical podcaster. Uh, you are, you know, who you are. And I don't have to say, you know, an, an ethical CTO, an ethical CEO, um, an ethical hacker. You know, hackers are good and they they make the world around us better by figuring out how it works. And in cybersecurity, they figure out how the bad guys could get in. So you, so we good guys can fix it. So there's no white hat, black hat for you. Generally. Well, you know, um, in in reality, there is, but still, um, to me, if if it's a malicious person who is doing evil, they don't deserve that phrase, hacker. Um, they don't deserve that. They haven't earned it. They are, you know, a criminal, a felon a espionage agent, um, they're not worthy of the term hacker. Well, we talked about li a little bit this in, in the prep, and I wanted to, to, to bring that back up, but you said something to the effect of if you are a young person in some country, and we don't really have to mention the name, it could be any of the you know, few countries that they could be from, uh, and you're young and someone you know, very credible uh, person from either a government or some credible organizational source offers you a, a boatload of money, you know, or, or let's just say not like a suspicious amount of money, but just offers you good pay to do some computer stuff. You, you're sort of saying that you, you kind of understand why someone would, would take that on. Yes, absolutely. You know, um, if you are a uh, have that ability to understand computers and technology and the internet and how it works, and you end up you're in a system that encourages you to do that in malicious ways, it may be that's your only source of livelihood. Do you blame and hate that person, or do you um, understand that they're part of a system that they really have no choice? They're being put in that position. I don't want them to succeed. I may think of them as my adversary. Uh, but I want them to. I want to understand them, and I want to understand it's going to take more than just defeating that individual to really bring about cybersecurity. We have to think of ways to mitigate the bigger risk and change the behavior of these malicious nations that encourage them. So, I mean, I've worked in companies where uh, there were ha uh, there were hackers or hacker teams hired and security cleared on the inside whose job it was to test the limits of certain systems that were used in, in various three-letter agencies. How do, you, how do you get inside the mind of a hacker? You know, um, my partner, Matt DeVoe, from a very early age was one of these hackers himself um, who would understand how things work and then seek to break in. And then as he graduated from college, he uh, worked in the Department of Defense area as one of the first cybersecurity red teamers doing exactly what you mentioned. He was one of the first to hack a satellite on orbit and the first to hack an aircraft carrier, helping the Department of Defense secure its systems. Since then, he went off and created several companies where you know, large groups of people were doing this kind of hacking to do exactly as you say, improve the defenses of these organizations. We do a little bit of that today also, uh, the very high-end stuff. Now, to do that, as you mentioned, it requires getting into the mind of the adversary and this is some of the most interesting stuff. It's thinking about what are their objectives and uh, what are their motivations and their tools and tactics and techniques. 
Um, and it's hard. To, you don't paint all adversaries the same way. But in general, I mentioned a good hacker is like a good adversary. They're persistent and they're going to collect information and they'll go, we call it a low and slow attack, uh, move very deliberately and covertly and get into your systems and then move towards their objectives. And those objectives may vary depending on what the red teamer is, if it's the good guys or what a criminal might do, if it's the bad guys. So hackers versus defenders, the, 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 the community, how different are they? And, and is it as neatly as the, you know, there are two communities? I mean, there, there are many hacker groups these days that have brand names, uh, you know, whether Hafnium or, <clears throat> or others. Tell me a little bit about these various communities and how they have changed over the You know, the, both the of them have evolved. Imagine back, let's say, in the mid-1990s, you might have individuals, a single person leading the defense of an enterprise, a single criminal attempting to target that enterprise. Well, soon those became organizations, groups of defenders versus groups of attackers and group criminals. Um, now it has evolved even more. There's entire ecosystems. Uh, the ecosystem of defense is huge. It takes all sorts of skills to be able to uh, secure your business and help it uh, accomplish its objectives. The ecosystem around the attack is also huge. Uh, there are some people who specialize in writing malicious code, and then they sell that. Others specialize in writing phishing emails, and they will sell that. Others specialize in getting you that initial access, and getting a little bit into an enterprise, and then they sell that. So there's uh, ecosystems fighting ecosystems now. How big is this uh, ecosystem? Compare it to any other industry. Like, give, give, give me an industry. I mean, is this like the size of the defense industry? Is this the size of the flower business? Like, where, what, what number of actors are in these ecosystems? You know, I have never seen a number that I'm confident in. Um, every number I see is a wild estimate. Um, so, but the kind of wild estimates I see are it's about a trillion dollar a year industry. And that could be about right. You see um, large criminal groups may be investing, you know, maybe one of them, the Russian Business Network, is uh, reportedly investing about $120 million a year to develop their own malicious code and ransomware and that type thing. Um, so you add all that up, and you know, I, I would imagine that's an approximate number. Now, some intellectual property theft, you can't put a number on. Um, if a nation is supporting that theft of intellectual property to build up their own industries, how do you put a value on that? So it's definitely huge and a serious problem. Yeah, and, and I guess on the other side, it's both hard to estimate what the defender community look like, and maybe it's uh, you know sort of like not not numbers that you want to go out with. But you know, on a general basis, if you just were to say, is it harder to defend or attack? Like, would you rather be a, a black or, or or a white uh, chess piece in this game? You know, um, the attackers definitely. I'd say it depends on the time and the position. Outside of your enterprise, outside of your network, oh, I'd much rather be the attacker. You know, the uh, the group of people who is looking for a target that's lightly defended, you get to pick that target and pick your avenue of approach and pick your attack. Much rather be the attacker. Um, on the other hand, once they're in your network, if you have built up if you if you have built up your defenses well enough, 
um, the defender can have the advantage because these attackers, they, they have to obey the laws of physics just like you and I. So they have to communicate and they have to move stuff around. And if they're in your network and if you have instrumented that well enough, the advantage can shift to you. You know, they have to go around and look for the right data and you see that and you stop them. So well, and also presumably it's, uh, it's a risky business. It's a risky business as well because if you do get caught, it's not pleasant. Plus, you know, you got a stamp on you, uh, right? Every time you get even close to getting caught, you, you kind of, you, you start to develop like a digital stamp that people are looking for, I guess. Well, it is true that uh, a lot of information is collected on adversaries and there's great community forums now for sharing that information. A favorite one is uh, this uh, capability called the MITRE attack framework. It's a taxonomy um, of attack tactics and techniques. Um, and it's a big system for storing these tactics and techniques that defenders can share and help map out you know, what is this that's attacking me? What might they be doing and how can I stop it? Yeah, this is MITRE here up in Boston, right? Uh, yeah, it's the same. Um, it's also, um, it's an FFRDC that um, is there in Boston and down here in the DC area. And they've right. done this wonderful thing for the community. Um, for a long time, they've been helping the community with standards for sharing information. Now this is standards for talking about adversary tactics and techniques. So the cybersecurity field was once, uh, I guess, something of a defense type activity where like you would point fingers and tell the business community, you will get attacked and you should be vigilant. But you're saying these days, that's not a luxury we can have anymore. There's something more than just general awareness, both on the government side and, and I guess in, in private business. Why, why is that, that the game has moved on a little bit from just awareness of like thou shalt change your passwords and that kind of thing? Part of it has been, you know, everything is connected to everything else. And the uh, computer processors are ubiquitous and sensors are ubiquitous and they're all interconnected in our houses, our cars, our, all of our transportation. Of course, our businesses, our entertainment, our shopping, it's all interconnected. And all of these systems, people try to write them secure. So um, at least they should, but they all have vulnerabilities. So maybe the vulnerabilities are not discovered yet, but when you add up all these interconnected devices and the fact that all of them have vulnerabilities, it's an infinite attack surface that defenders have to defend against. And I mentioned these ecosystems of adversaries that have developed. There are specialists who are working to get into just about any device you can think of. And once they learn how to do that, they can sell that on dark web markets. So defenders today really have to up their game and they have to share and collaborate and be part of the defenders ecosystem. Uh, that's what really gives me hope is that sharing and collaboration. Hmm. Explain what uh, what the Red Queen effect is. The Red Queen effect. This is uh, it comes out of the um, um, through the Looking Glass stories. Alice in Wonderland. Um, Alice was um, taken by the Red Queen, and they were running running really fast. And Alice looks over, and she notices the landscape is not changing at all. And she asked the queen, we're running so fast, how come we're not getting anywhere? And the queen tells her that in my land, you must run twice as fast just to stay still. And that, in many ways, is uh, describing cybersecurity today, the red queen effect. 
you got to move fast and keep your game up because the adversaries are moving fast. And you want to bring in a lot of new systems and IT to help your business, you're going to need to move a little bit faster. Just uh, So that's the Red Queen effect. And it's so very relevant to the technological landscape we're in today. There's another term that you brought up with me, zero trust networks, uh, kind of trust no one. Uh, where, where does that come from and why is that so relevant today? Like what has changed again, like with, with this term? You know, the, um, the community right now, the entire cybersecurity community is aware of this concept of zero trust networking. Uh, this zero trust architecture and uh, zero trust security means your devices should not trust other devices. You should assume that that other device might be penetrated and designed for that. Now, the approach has been around for quite a while. It was uh, um, you know, there in the 90s, but to me, it came out of the intelligence community. That's the way Intel folks have always operated. Uh, you have to be very careful. Trust no one, especially when you're in adversary territory. Um, understand who it is before you communicate with them. Well, the uh, digital version of that now, um, this zero trust architecture, is a very important step um, to mitigating risk and improving security. And it's a, it's a design methodology, but it does require some technological changes to get you to that point, including very strong authorization and identity management and very smart network design to make sure that your systems are communicating in this zero trust way. I, I wanted to bring uh, uh, some, some more, more disruptive forces up because, you know, there's a technology aspect to cybersecurity, clearly, right? But then there's also a policy aspect, which you are very aware of because you've, you've, you've been, been in that system and at least delivered messages, you know, that had policy implications, certainly uh, on the defense side and others. And then, but then, you know, it, it is a business uh, and, and it's a changing business. So there's uh, obviously a lot of pr providers now of cybersecurity. And, and of course, on the dark side, there's providers as well. Um, uh, but then social dynamics are important. You can't just sort of leave this to the experts in a certain sense, right? We're all part of this movement. What, what are the disruptive forces that you think are the most important to keep keep in mind? Let's say if you are in government and you're trying to occupy an important uh, space and, 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 you know, really be, uh, be an active sort of cybersecurity policymaker, for example. Right. One of the most disruptive, and we've all been tracking this for a decade now, is cloud computing. Um, and maybe we all hear it so much. We uh, haven't focused on the changes in that domain. But if you move aggressively to cloud computing using the major providers, um, Google, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, um, it gives you potentials to leap ahead in your cybersecurity and risk mitigation uh, by building in more controls. And these three companies are changing so fast and adding more and more security capabilities, it can really be positively disruptive for any government agency. Ten years ago, if you would have asked me, is cloud computing more secure than on-prem? I probably would have answered, well, it could be, depending on how it's engineered. If you asked me today, is cloud computing more secure than on-prem computing? I would say, Absolutely. Um, you still have to engineer it, but if you apply the right engineering, it is much more secure than your own on-prem computing. Why is that? Well, um, Google, Microsoft, Amazon 
are employing thousands of engineers to reduce risk. You still have to configure it appropriately, but having these engineers and developers on your team, it just really, really helps. And, and is there another reason too? Because on-prem, I guess, once it's penetrated, it's a little bit like then you're really in versus these other networks. They are assuming there, there are people always coming in and get gaining access in the wrong way. So uh, they're much more prepared for it yes. in addition to having it, more resources. Absolutely. Now, in both yeah. cases, you're supposed to keep it configured right. It's going to be easier for you to configure the cloud. Your own on-prem stuff has grown so complicated and complex. Um, it's just, it's not configured appropriately. I would bet money. Hmm. If you're looking, um, I guess, at what's happening right now and thinking, you know, what are some of the recommended ways that you would track this community? We talked about a, a conference or the RSA that's important, but is there really just one source that you can go to and kind of understand this domain or is it just splitting up into so many expertise, you know, domains that it's hard? You know, there is not one source that's true. Now I have a source OodaLoop.com, and I really yes. uh, would like to bring everybody's attention to that. But even sure. there, we write for a specific kind of person. Uh, we write about technological risk, cybersecurity risk, geopolitical risk uh, for the business executive. But there is not a single source I would say you go to for all things. Now, there's some really good government sources now. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security has a critical infrastructure and security agency that does fantastic work, uh, better than has ever been done in the past. And it's a great source, but it leans towards the more technical. Um, so any cybersecurity person is going to need to cast a wide net and bring in a lot of these sources to figure out what's going on. Mm. You and I share this uh, uh, background that we are affiliated with the Geotech Center at the Atlantic Council. And uh, there's a report there uh, by the Geotech Commission that speaks quite a bit uh, on Cybersecurity, and there's also other other reports, I guess, on the future of cybersecurity that are relevant. What do you what do you make of of these reports, and what what is there to sort of do on the policy side? Well, um, the Atlantic Council overall is doing a great job in um, collaborating and coordinating, and the Geotech Center itself um, has this focus of trying to understand the impact technology is going to have on geo geopolitics. And this most recent report, I think, does a fantastic job of coming up with seven major recommendations um, categorized like, uh, how do we lead? What is the future of leadership? Um, and what is the future of work? But many of these recommendations are on how to make the best use of data uh, to inform citizens and inform government decision makers and to improve um, health sciences. So it's not just IT. And this... Um, most recent report, I think, does a great job of furthering the agenda of those who want to pursue more freedom. It's definitely um, something written for the open societies, uh, those who believe that uh, governments should be by those who are governed. Um, um, you know, we should be in charge of our government. It is not the kind of document that's for the country that is uh, the totalitarian or kleptocracy or communist government. Uh, so it's definitely... Uh, something important for us to read and understand. If you if you like technology, if you like to study its impact on policy, this is a great report. One other note um, on this, I noticed reading through the seven uh, key recommendations of this report, 
almost everyone has something to do with security. Um, so security is becoming that important to optimizing the use of technology in our policy. Yeah, I guess security, trust, privacy, these are not side topics anymore. They're not just the last two pages thinking, in the future, we'll have to worry about this. this it, it is a worry. Yes. Already. Um, well, looking more more into sort of the future, uh, some of the traditional adversaries of the United States or of the Western world, they're, they're, they're fairly well, well known, but... But they're also changing and adapting. What if you look at um, you know countries uh, th that typically show up in at least in U.S. worries about cybersecurity? I mean, whether it's Russia or China or or, or others. But let's just take one of those two for for the moment. W what do you see happening there on the cyber side? Are there any trends to be aware of, or any developments that that are notable? There are. Um and we could talk about both Russia and China. They're very different nations, um, very different uh, politics and very different concerns, but we have seen them collaborating more together. Um, China much larger and very technologically oriented, and they are very aggressively pursuing their own uh, industries around technology and is definitely one to watch. They have you know, proven that they can get into just about any system that they set their minds on. Um, and they... If they, if they want to get into your system, they will get into your system, unfortunately. And we have seen a shift in their tactics and techniques and their overall approaches in the last two years. There's something in diplomatic circles that's being called um, Wolf Warrior Diplomacy from China. It's named after a famous movie, a very popular movie in China, uh, which is kind of their version of Rambo. Uh, and he goes out. Where and, they? I read about this movie. They they exploded five live rockets at like some incredibly incredible expense to to film that movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so it's it's an awesome version of Rambo, I guess. And that, that's yeah. it, the Wolf Warrior. And now, but in the context of their diplomacy, it's not so good. It's very in your face. And that's being seen by nations around the world. It's like, you know, I don't care anymore. I'm going to take Hong Kong. We will do that our way and you will have nothing to say about it. Uh, what's next? Is Taiwan next? And they're going to do it and they will say, you will have nothing to say about it. Uh, we are going to take the South China Sea and you know we don't care what we said in the past. We're going to do that. Um, and on and on and on and on. And now so it's like they're calling your bluff type diplomacy, basically. Yes. And. Now, I don't know how this is going to play out. I'm not in government now. I try to track this stuff. Um, but I believe this is waking up a lot of other nations that we maybe we need to collaborate together and work jointly to try to um, make progress here. Um, I also believe it's important to keep trade up with China. I'm a realist. You know, we, um, but we need to do that in fair and equitable ways. And we need to do that in ways where if a company does business with China, uh, they don't automatically get hacked and get all their stuff stolen. Uh, so I'm, I want us to do business. I want us to do trade. I want us to you know, try to influence China to be more fair and open. But with these shifts in diplomacy like that, I'm not quite sure what the answer is. But maybe that's the point. Um, don't go to a guy like me for that answer. Let's collaborate together um, jointly, governments around the world, um, to figure out what the right answer is. 
I, I want you to address uh, the the more longer term sort of future cyber threat. Uh, is the cyber threat really from one of these nations that we just spoke about, or is it perhaps more from domestic terrorists or others or people at least who are on you know on on the soil already? Um, and also, I wanted you to maybe separately uh, address this we talked about this thought experiment that you had that, you know, this is also sort of related to long-term, what's going to happen to our systems and our societies. Like what if you wake up and you sort of think after 20 years and you were like frozen in, in, in some cryogenic chamber and come out and you're sort of looking, looking back at society, you know, what were, and you're saying, what have you done to the planet? What have you done to the society? And address a little bit how, how you think, we need to think today in order to get the society we, we deserve tomorrow. Great, thanks. Um, you know, the um, in terms of the threat, the risk manager in a global corporation today needs to look at a lot of threats from the external uh, nation trying to steal intellectual property or trying to use your resources to your own employees. Maybe one day a good employee becomes tempted to do something bad. Um, and then the physical threat, there's reports in the news about um, a guy who was gathering explosives in what was going to be an attack against an Amazon warehouse. Um, back in um, October, there was an attack against a switching center in Nashville, a physical threat. So the risk manager in a global corporation today has a lot of things to worry about. Uh, but one of the key worries we should all think about is, yeah, you know, how is the future going to look at us? Which gets to this second part of your question. You know, imagine uh, you and I did get put in a chirogenic chamber and um, you know, 20 years from now, we wake up and right after they give us coffee, they start to ask us questions. What would the world look like then? And what kind of questions are they going to ask us? I think they might say things like, Trond, Bob, how come you guys were still eating meat? Or, you know, how come, what's all this stuff about healthcare? Why didn't you cure diabetes back then when you could have? I mean, it was right there. And instead, you dedicated all your time to Netflix. You know, where's your priorities? I wonder about that. How will history treat us? And privacy, are we going to hand the next generation uh, the same kind of privacy protections that we grew to expect? Or are we going to hand them a surveillance, um, a corporate surveillance world where in a, or a surveillance state that tracks their every movement and doesn't give them the freedom of thought and movement that you and I take for granted? You know, this kind of thought experiment, I think, can help us think through the ethics of technology. And Trond, I know you put a lot of work and thought into this too, and would love your response to any of that. You know, what can we do today, and how does thinking about the future um, help drive our decisions today? That's certainly something I ask myself, and love your context on that, Tron. Well, this is mostly about you, my friend. I will ask you good questions. I, I certainly have some opinions. I but I would say. It's um, it is of course it's an ethical dilemma, and like many ethical dilemmas, there are no s quick solutions to these, right? Because if if we knew, and if we agreed, we would all be going in sort of one monolithic direction, and that has never seemed to be society. So, I guess my question back to you is sort of saying, um, is there really a world? where we get more freedom and not less? Because the only way that I've heard that formulated, I've had a couple of those 
people on, on, on my podcast, I'll send you some, some of those episodes, but there's, it's a version of sort of like the common spaced thinkers. There's a guy called Michel Bowens and he talks about basically kind of a reset, you know, uh, where you say, well, I accept none of these institutions. We have come to our planetary boundaries with all of these things. None of these rules make any sense. We're going to go back to just creating self-subsistent, uh, subsistent communities and we're going to collaborate over things that we do control, and we're going to live within our means, each and every one to their own community, and uh, basically accountable only to those communities. So it's like a societal reset that he, he he basically says psychologically even we need this as a as a world. But yeah. that is a pretty extreme uh, concept, right? In in a sense, I, I think I believe in a lot of the tenets of it. But the challenge is, of course, to get that to become a majority view is going to take more than 20 years. You, you would be uh, toast in that cryogenic chamber before you could come out safely. Yeah. So I think that's a good point. And I also would say that you know, guys like me, when you're in the cybersecurity business, you can either be an optimist or a pessimist. And there's plenty of uh, data that says you should be a pessimist because the bad guys are going to keep coming and coming and coming. But I'm an optimist and I choose to be that. And I really believe the future is going to be bright. And that includes the future of cybersecurity and the future of privacy. But um, here's something I have learned about myself being an optimist. Optimists tend to also be naive sometimes. And maybe we're a little too, you know, rose-colored glasses. Um, so I have seen some indications that keep me optimistic. One is the rise of technologies like the blockchain technologies. Now, um, Bitcoin truly is not anonymous. I mean, you, you, a, a bad guy really has to work with Bitcoin to make it, you know, some anonymity. Um, but there are others that are actually more anonymous than that. And there's, it does give you more freedom if you're using systems like blockchain and Ethereum-based tokens and other things. So hold that in your mind just a second. Then there's this movement toward a pseudonymity, pseudonymity. Um, you know, pen names is what they would used to have called it. Um, you can publish under your real name, and I do that a lot. Um, I'm way out there with my real name, but others choose to use a pen name in all of their digital interactions, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, to the greatest extent possible. So they separate their real name from their social name, and they feel it gives them more freedom. Um, and if you hold those two thoughts together and now think of what the Geotech is, Center is doing which is studying how technology impacts geopolitics. Uh, some of our discussions in the uh, Atlantic Council Geotech Center have been on this idea of what kind of groupings can arise outside of geography um, where collections of people get together to do things um, and what technologies might they use for that? A Discord, um, other systems like that, secure systems. Um, and could they eventually have the power to deliver services like a nation might. I don't think anytime in our lifetime, they're going to replace the nation, but it's going to be a new entity. So the optimist in me says a mix of all of those things together could keep privacy alive for future generations and um, help us continue to use privacy to our benefit. Can you speak a little more about this new entity? Because I'm hearing more and more uh, people who are starting to think about what a world, not necessarily post the nation state, but it could be a just a coexistence of not just networks either, but basically organizational units 
that are starting, if not even rivaling, they're just kind of on top of and on the side of and sort of like in in this like relationship with other systems and sort of maybe just coexisting even peacefully with, with the nation state and other and other things. What are what are the evolving kind of governance mechanisms that we should and some of us are exploring that are relevant for this topic of sort of cyber? Because um well, I have a lot of you know blockchain startup CEOs and founders on on my show, and all of them talk about a different world, a more distributed world, a world where central banks are not calling the shots. So the question is, who then is calling the shots? And and they do talk about a world where content products, problematic or not, all have this like provenance label attached to them as like a digital mark and you know this crypto art is now the hottest thing right so p- people are starting to use this crypto concept this identification which ties in very closely with cyber right with security because it is secure provenance and labels that you right. can trust so it's a very different world potentially yeah and you know i see a lot of promise there you know with uh, ethereum being programmable Developers can create things on top of it, including not just other cryptocurrencies, but real applications that do stuff for you. And one of the great use cases so far is this thing that I'm sure many of your guests have talked about before, distributed finance or DeFi. And there's many of these DeFi protocols have popped up that in many ways can replace what your bank is doing. Now, unfortunately, that's not totally decentralized yet. There's still you know, groups of programmers have to make this work, but um, important to this concept of the new governance system, the open, transparent DeFi capabilities will allow people to vote depending on how much of a governance token they own. So that distributes the governors, how these things are governed. And I think part of this is the wave of the future. And I can vote on these things without anybody knowing who I am. They just know an address, and this address has 30 of these tokens, so it gets 30 votes. So this Well, it's a very different version of democracy. I guess it's not democracy. It's a different voting system allocating rights differently, still using some sort of financial or at least contribution metric. And so, so many of us are learning through this. There are issues uh, that have been seen in some of these protocols where all right, I do get a vote. I've got 30 of these governance tokens, but this guy has 10,000 governance tokens. Why does he get to overrule everything I say? Um, well, that's just the reality that we're trying to think through right now. You know, what's what's right and fair in that world? Well, I mean, that's not so different than our world today, right? If you think about the way that billionaires are portioning out their resources on lobbying networks, uh, you know, downright friendships and uh, conversations but uh, but also just resources you know whether it's for good or for, for, for bad so you can't get around that resources are, will always be resources right. and a, another thing that has popped up is um, in the real world in the physical world if there's some sort of bank fraud of course there's insurance and I'm going to be covered on that but there's police and investigators who can track down criminals and find where they are in this world of DeFi there's really no police yet. And there's no crying demand for it. People aren't saying, I need the DeFi police to watch Ethereum to look for bad guys. 
Um, we're, it's trying to be built in a way that you won't need the police. But will it be that way forever? If, if we're creating these online nations, eventually we're going to need some law enforcement. Yeah, it seems far-fetched to me to think that this is uh, some sort of ideal state, right? I don't know that. I, I'm not that much of an optimist. Maybe I'm less of an optimist than you. I, I sort of agree with that point of view. I think there's going to be a need for enforcing rules in, in new ways. Speak to me about one important thing that you talked to me about earlier, which is cyber threat amnesia. This idea uh, that you're explaining to me that somehow we are quite eager to accept that there is a threat, right? But we're also so quick to forget. Yeah, so I stumbled upon work? this in the in the nineties. Um, yeah, I was a Navy intelligence officer, and then nineteen ninety eight, I was told my job is doing intelligence support to cyber defense for Department of Defense. So we call it the J two, the Director of Intelligence for a new Joint Task Force for Computer Network Defense, the first Cyber Command. Um, and in doing that, I did a lot of reading, a lot of study, a lot of fighting bad guys. And one of the things that I was instrumental in uh, helping the nation think through was an activity called Moonlight Maze. It was uh, the first advanced persistent threat, an adversary getting into our stuff. And you know, I had to push them out and figure out who it was. And when it came time for public statements on that, the Secretary of Defense came out and said, um, Moonlight Maze was a wake-up call for the Department of Defense. And it was. But then I started doing more reading. And I had found that two years prior, the assistant secretary of defense had said solar sunrise was a wake up call for the Department of Defense. I did more reading and go back to the 1970s. A famous report at the Defense Science Board said that the um, internetworking of our computers was a wake up call for the Department of Defense. And then I, I started keeping a book. It's now 2021. Um, and every single year, there's a policymaker coming out saying, this last attack was a wake-up call for the Department of Defense or the Department of Homeland Security or the nation. Um, the last one, the um, commander of Cyber Command, four-star um, general, testifies in front of Congress that the uh, solar sunrise attacks were a clarion call for us to wake up to the cyber threat. So um, years ago, thinking through all this, I started to think, why? Why is this? And part of it is because this occurs in cyberspace, an invisible man-made domain, the interconnected IT we all work in. And uh, this makes it easy for us to fix a problem and then forget about the problem, forget it ever existed. It's as if these organizations develop amnesia. And that's what I mean when I say cyber threat amnesia. And I think there's ways to fight that amnesia uh, through education and training. Um, again, that's the optimist in me speaking. But so far, tracking it for 25 years, it happens every single year. So we haven't fixed it yet. Well, there are a lot of things to fix, which is why people like you need to be there to remind us. It's a complicated world we live in. It really is. But I love it. That's the, that's the spirit. Uh, Bob, I thank you so much for, for your contribution. It's been uh, immensely interesting to dive into these these issues um i wish you a wonderful day and thanks a lot thank you tron thanks for the hard questions <laughs> i i try yeah. you have just listened to episode 115 of the futurized podcast with host ronana unheim futurist and author the topic was the future of cybersecurity. in this conversation we talk about new mental models for thinking about security 
My takeaway is that cybersecurity cannot rely on awareness alone. We need to become smarter than that, allowing technology and systematic approaches to help us become more secure. We also need to bake ethics into the discussion. What should we allow? What norms should we work to establish across the international community as acceptable and not acceptable attack spaces and under what conditions? Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 102 on the geotech decade, episode number 69 on the future of quantum security, or episode number 14 on post-pandemic tech. Futurized, conversations that matter.